When I worked in the mill, weaving at the loom, I'd gaze absent-minded at the roof. And half the time the shuttle would tangle in the threads, and the warp would get mixed with the woof. If I loved you... But you don't. No, I don't. But somehow I can see just exactly how I be. If I loved you time and again, I would try to Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, June 3rd, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Are you... uh Drinking a lot of fluids and and uh, getting a lot of rest and making it through this season. Well, um, I, I should be doing that uh, because uh, tomorrow afternoon I am hosting the Theater World Awards, and um, but um, it's been so hectic um, putting things in speeches and taking them out and all that that uh, no, I have not been getting enough rest. But I have a feeling I'll sleep very well tomorrow night. And uh, you've picked the appropriate Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> don't depend on that <laughs> <laughs> and uh drama desk as well so uh keep that's tonight yeah. yeah all right also with us is michael portantier michael is a theater reviewer and essayist he is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the new york times and other major publications you can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com good morning michael good morning good morning just a uh, note for our listeners here Next Sunday, we will not have a This Week on Broadway because it is just hours before the Tony Awards. Uh, <laughs> and so we're not sure that we could say anything that would really uh, be timely enough. But we will uh, be covering the Tony Award wrap-up on Today on Broadway 
uh, and then we'll talk about it on the following Sunday, the 17th. We're, we're also going to talk to Frank Verlizzo at that point uh, about his book. Uh, so um, join us back on today on Broadway on Monday to hear a Tony Award wrap-up next week, and then Peter, Michael, and I will talk about our thoughts on the Tony Awards the following Sunday. First up, uh, we're going to talk about reviews. Peter, you got a chance to see Small Town Story at the American Theater Group in South Orange, New Jersey. So uh, tell us what you thought of that. Well, faithful listeners may recall that some time ago, years ago, I, I imagine, um, I, I saw a reading of Small Town Story at uh, the Upstairs Theater at Playwrights Horizon. I thought it was terrific. It's a story about a Texas town. I, I believe it's based on a true story. A Texas town that um, where the teacher in the high school wanted to produce rent. And um, there was quite a kerfuffle because uh, the parents and even people who weren't parents got upset that uh, a show that involved um, homosexuality and drugs was going to be done at their local high school. So um, the um, teacher dug in his heels and uh, so did the people in the town. And um, you may have a, a feeling on how it works out and you may be surprised on how it does work out. And that's always a good thing. Uh, the book and lyric, well, the book is by Sammy Buck, who I think is really a, a, quite a talent, and I've thought so for a long time, especially with his musical Like You Like It, which was an update of um, As You Like It, but set in a high school. So <laughs> he knows his high school. And um, But the lyrics were also written by Brandon James Gwynn, who wrote the music. So they collaborated on this story. And... Um, <clears throat> I think this is a musical well worth seeing. I don't think it's getting an ideal production, and um, I'm sorry about that. And I do believe that the uh, director is at fault. And I realized one of the reasons I liked the reading so much was the fact that everybody was close to the stage, uh, the lip of the stage, and um, they were all um, easy to hear and easy to see. Unfortunately, the stage at uh, American Theatre Group in South Orange is quite a generous stage. It's a very big stage, and as a result, um, the director has decided to put a lot of scenes way back, uh, a lot of scenes, uh, not center stage. Uh, at one point, a girl uh, was talking, and um, my girlfriend and I looked at each other and said, where is she? Where is she? Oh, 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 there she is. Okay, she's sitting down over there. So um, there's also a scene in which a father um, and son, they've been having issues because the son wants to be in the play and the father doesn't want him to be. Um, and what happens is that um, the teacher says to the son, um, your father wants to talk to you about this. And he says, okay, I'll take the call. And the, the teacher says, no, this has to be done in person. You have to confront him in person. And the next scene, the father is way upstage, way far away. And the son is way downstage uh, at, you know, at a polar opposite. So I think that's very odd staging. So it's not the ideal production, but but the people are very good in it. Uh, we have a few uh, people that we recognize. Stacy Todd Holt uh, plays the boy's father. And Thursday Farrar plays the girl's mother. The girl um, is uh, somebody who has issues of her own, and Rent helps her to come to terms with what um, her sexuality. And, of course, this isn't very much welcome in this Texas town either. Um, so the lyrics are astonishingly 
competent and um, <laughs> more than that, that's that sounds like a backhanded compliment. No, they're they're competent in the sense that the craft is very good. But more to the point, the observations are really quite wonderful. And um, for example, the girl has a song uh, with the mother early on talking about the fact that she's really a good kid. You know, I don't have tattoos is one of her observations, which uh, really is quite good. And um, so it's a very, very good story. And I just wish that um, our director would bring it closer to the stage so we could um, certainly see it better and enjoy it better. But I do believe this is a show with a great future and um, not not just uh, um, that it'll be big in the amateur markets where there are high schools and kids will be the appropriate age. But more to the point, I really do believe this is a, 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 an intelligent musical that makes you think and, um, and and makes you come out of there saying, wow, you know, that principal of that high school really tried to do the right thing. And, uh, and that's pretty impressive as well because we would expect really a stock character there and that doesn't quite happen. Not quite. There are times when she seems to be a stock character. But not quite. I do take issue with the fact that she keeps on complaining. Uh, no, I'm sorry. She keeps on uh, asserting that she is extraordinarily wealthy. She talks about having more money than Bill Gates. She talks about having more money than um, than uh, Warren Buffett. She talks about having more money than Saudi Arabia. Well, uh, you know, uh, principals in high schools, I don't think, make that much money that they can really compare themselves to those three um, names. But um, so I don't know why that has to be in there. I, I think it's a little hard to believe. Um, so I, mean, I think it would be fine if she said, I have money, you know, but and leave it at that. Um, because I mean, if she's a single woman who's been working all her life, I suppose she does. But anyway, but I don't think she has as much as Warren Buffett unless it came from family money and that's not established. So those those are such nitpicks because there's so much good in small town story. Now, if you live in New York and you're saying, wait a minute, where's South Orange? It's not that hard to get to. Uh, there's a train that leaves right from Penn Station, leaves you off um, well, maybe a five-minute walk, maybe a three-minute walk from the theater. But more to the point, um, if you want to eat a drink, believe me, you can do it there. Um, it's a very nice little village in South Orange, and there are plenty of places for you to um, eat and drink before or after the show. So, uh, And the theater is um, a rather new space. I think it's been around fewer than 10 years, and it's uh, it was a very smart idea. What they did was actually uh, a movie theater was going to be built, and um, and there was the movie theater uh, fine uh, 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 something plex i don't know how many they have but um but they also built a theater for legitimate purposes it's about i don't know about 300 seats maybe very clean very comfortable uh very good sight lines and all that so um i do think that the american theater group is worth checking out whenever they do a show and um and this is one that really deserves your attention uh despite the flaws in the production well, Peter, your review is so interesting for many reasons, including the fact that that subject matter is still very much in the news. Oh, yeah. You know, we still still read about these high school productions being suddenly canceled or, or boat yeah, raised, you right, know. Sure. And of course, the, the TV show Rise was all about this huge controversy over a, a high school production of Spring Awakening. Yeah. 
Yeah, yes, of course, we did have that recent thing with Big Fish, right, um, right. That, uh, that turned out to be a problem because um, the uh, director put in characters that seemed to be gay, um, and uh, there was a, 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 an incident about that. So, yeah, so I do think this is a, um, a timely story. Maybe it'll help things to change a bit. Um, and, you know, really, when you think of it, <laughs> how many performances does the high school do of a show? I mean, you know, to have all this you know, chaos in the town. We don't want this show to be on where it'll probably start on Friday and end on Saturday, Sunday afternoon. I mean, you know, in a way, I mean, is this really going to destroy lives? Um, can really three performances and how many people are going to see it? You know, I, that doesn't come up in the show, but it was something that occurred to me. Um, I, I guess some of them run two weekends or six, right, performances, right, you know, right, but, right. but you have to admit the the length of a high school show is, um, uh, it's run is, is not a substantial one. So, um, I, I mean, they, they do it more than Moose Murders did. But I mean, still, you know, I, I, it's not uh, an amazing number of performances. And maybe some people say that's not the point, And I'll understand that point of view, too. But uh, anyway, um, when, well, let me say when Sammy Buck writes something, I think uh, attention must be paid. Well, in one final hopeful note, I have a friend who just just directed a high school production of Rent on Staten uh-huh. Island. Ah, look at that. Go and on. he said um, he, uh, you know, he gave me some examples I can't remember, but he said that the cuts were extremely minor, and basically they did. Oh, the, that's the, yeah. Go ahead. I'm glad you yeah. brought that up. Go on, go on, go. On, and then well, I'll... and no, I mean, basically, it was the show as he know, as we know it, just very minor, like maybe one or two of the more extreme words. Or I, I, I wish I could remember the specifics, but it didn't sound like anything that would really change the uh you know the the heart of this of the show and they certainly didn't don't avoid the the gay subject matter or the aids i mean you couldn't do that show yeah. and, and oh. you know, uh so uh so i i thought that sounded very hopeful that you know and i guess it depends on the community Yes, well, uh, what I should have mentioned is the fact that it is established that this is rent the high school edition. Okay, and, yeah. and even that, you know, is is not going to pass muster with these people. And I I will admit that I imagine most people in the audience don't really get what that means a high school edition. Um, you know, those of us who who know that. MTI puts out um, junior versions and school versions and kids versions and, again, high school editions. You know, we're all set there. Um, but um, it may be a lot for uh, the rest of the population to uh, um, take in. But, um, but they do establish that this is uh, rent light in essence. Well, I mean, what he did was the high school edition, but he really made it sound to me like it's I don't know if you've ever seen the high school edition. I haven't. But it sounded to me like it really was it, it, you know, it was not a violation in any way and and not watered down to any, you know, degree that we would get upset about. I uh, I guess um, those junior versions and high school versions, uh, I suppose they mean very different things in different cases, uh, depending on the show, wasn't it? it, is it still true or wasn't it actually true that there was a junior version of Into the Woods that completely cut the second act? Yeah, that's what they do. That's yeah. Exactly OK. All do. right. So that's a big that's a big difference. Uh, uh, I believe that's the only one that does that. Um, I believe all the other ones are simply condensations like Reader's Digest used to do with books. Um, but Into the Woods, yes, simply leaves it at Act One and um, and then everybody goes home. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Do you, have you guys uh, seen the old Calcutta uh, high school version? 
No, 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 no. <laughs> it's ten minutes. It's ten minutes long. <laughs> it's just a play. It's just a playbill. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I was at the closing performance of um, O Calcutta, performance oh. five nine five nine. And that's the last time I've seen it, and I imagine it may very well be the last time. Well, somebody's going to revive it. You know somebody will, because it does have, I imagine, still some name recognition, I imagine. so. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask the two of you, um, Matt and I on Today on Broadway talked about uh, NPR did a story on a, uh, a theater company in Georgia that's got this play called Swamp Gravy. Have you ever heard of Swamp Gravy? Uh-uh. No. Uh, it, uh, this, uh, I was listening to this story on NPR and it sounded like waiting for Guffman and uh, I thought it was, I thought it was a spoof, but it seems that they've done it for 26 years that they, wow. this, this, uh, theater company in Georgia, um, this director came to them with an idea about doing a folk play about their town itself and, it actually was wildly successful, and they have done it for 26 years and built a, uh, an arts council, and they built a legitimate theater to house it and things like that. And I'm like, I have never heard of this, so I thought yeah, I'd run it by you. story. That's terrific. Good for them. Yeah. It's uh, really fascinating. And about the uh, American Theater Group in South Orange um, – I know a number of Broadway performers who live in South Orange, so I think South Orange is a great place to put a, a legitimate professional yeah, theater company. Yeah, yeah I so, agree. So uh, that is great. And Sammy Buck, I've known Sammy for a long time. Oh, have He's you? very oh. talented. Yeah. Oh. Let's see if we can okay. get Sammy on. I'll give him. I'll give him a call and see if we can get him on sometime during the summer. Okay. And we'll chat with him about his uh, his stuff. Uh, I did find in the archives, uh, Peter, you did talk about this on November 17, 2014. So uh -huh. I have a link to that in the show notes if anybody wants to go back and listen to uh, uh, classic Felicia. Ah. <laughs> All right. Michael, fun. Peter, you got over to Signature to see Our Lady of 121st Street. So, Michael, why don't you start us off with that? Sure. I'm so gratified that the Signature Theater is focusing on the work of Stephen Adley Gerges, one of my favorite playwrights, as their residency one playwright for 2017-2018. Uh, Signature gave us a superb production of Gerges's Jesus Hop the A-Train earlier this season, and now they're presenting a very strong production of Our Lady of 121st Street, directed by Felicia Rashad. And uh, this was a play I first saw in its original off-Broadway production by the Labyrinth Theater in 2002. And it's really a uh, very excellent play set in and around a funeral home in Harlem where the body of a beloved Catholic school teacher, Sister Rose, has gone missing from her casket. And a bunch of very, very colorful characters, uh, most or all of them former students of Sister Rose, react to the situation and to each other. Um, there is a lot of anger and hurt and dysfunction among these people, and uh, all the various discussions and confrontations range over such subjects as religion, sex, substance abuse, childhood trauma, mental illness, marital infidelity, all of the 
you know, problems that so many of us face uh, and dealt with in the terms that common people use for these for these uh, discussions. It, it turns out that Sister Rose herself carried the scars of childhood abuse and alcoholism. And although she was respected and loved by so many of her students, she was also feared and apparently even hated by some, which presumably accounts for the disappearance of her body. Um, But that is kind of, uh, it may sound like that's the central point of the play. It's really not. It's it's not a a mystery at heart. It's really more of a character study and, um, letting us see how all of these people uh react to each other and to and to what what and and their memories of this teacher and how she you know uh what a formative influence she was in their lives um the play is set at the time when it was written in the early 2000s but the dialogue and the situations remain fresh and sharp. Um, the night I was there, a reference to Rudy Giuliani got a really big reaction from the audience. And there was some fun stuff with cell phones, etc. cetera. Uh, among the standouts in the cast are Hill Harper as Rooftop and John Doman as Father Lux. And they have a scene together in a confessional that is, I would say, the absolute comic highlight of the play. Also, excellent are Quincy Tyler Bernstein as Inez, Rooftop's angry ex-wife, uh, Paula Lazaro as the, the very high-strung addict Norca, and um, the two gay characters, uh, Flip and Gale, played by Jim on Cole and Kevin Isola, are very well-written and acted in a non-condescending way. Uh, it's interesting to see characters written at that time, uh, you know, portrayed on stage now in, in a revival. Uh, my only major criticism of this production is, I guess, the venue and the set design. Uh, the Irene Diamond stage at the Pershing Square Signature Center is is quite huge when the full extent of it is used. Uh, I would say it's about twice the size of the stage on which the twenty uh, the two thousand two labyrinth production was presented, and that was in a, a space on Twenty First Street called Center Stage New York, which I believe no longer exists. Um, so in this production, there I would say there's a resultant loss of intimacy. Um, as it is, we have several different playing areas isolated across the the large width and depth of the stage uh where there's the funeral home a bar a confessional and um we, we often have the sense that the actors are shouting to make themselves heard uh and this is not always appropriate to the dialogue i thought um a false proscenium might have been advisable in this case uh to decrease the the huge playing area somewhat although i don't know if i've ever seen any Thing like that done in any one of these theaters. I, I, I don't think modern set designers are into that so much. Um, but also, if uh, if scenic designer Walt Spangler had chosen to use some traditional flats for scenery uh, rather than all these wide open spaces, that might have helped in terms of uh, just closing things a little more and, and also helping the projection of the actors because their voices would have had something to bounce against. Um, but it's still a, it's really a, a very strong production of a play that I'm 
happy to see again. I couldn't wait to see it again. Uh, Gerges's only Broadway credit to date is the motherfucker with the hat. And by the way, uh, the first noun in that phrase is used repeatedly, <laughs> along with lots of other raw language in Our Lady of 121st Street. Uh, but anyway, I hope we see lots more of his work, both old and new, on Broadway in the future, because the extremely high-level quality of the writing that he does is, I think, is just what Broadway needs to balance the plays and musicals on the other end of the spectrum. So um, that would be something I would be very gratified to see as well. All right, Peter, what'd you think? Uh, I agree with Michael on every point, uh, though I do have to make a correction. Uh. Um, the, <laughs> the director's name is Felicia. She pronounces <laughs> She actually pronounces it exactly the way I pronounced my last name. And let me tell you how I know this. And that is because in 1986, I was at a party where there was three deep, five deep at the bar. And uh, I was at the end of the line. And so was this stunning looking black woman. I said, well, you know, we have time to kill. You know, why don't we talk? Uh, what's your name? And she said, Felicia. And I said, my God, that's my name, too. <laughs> um, I said, what do you do? She said, I'm an actress. You know, with a little edge in her voice. I said, oh, have I ever seen you in anything? She said, the Cosby show? <laughs> See, I don't watch any TV. I'm always at the theater. I mean, yeah. And then all of a sudden, the look on her face was, oh, my God, there's someone in America who doesn't know me. Oh, my God, maybe there's two, maybe there's four, maybe there's eight, maybe there's 16. I mean, it, it, it was like a panic thing that, um, that came over her, which was really kind of fascinating. <laughs> so um, so I'll, I'll always remember that that, that name is pronounced Felicia. Um, my favorite scene in the play was definitely the one in the confessional, which I thought was hilarious beyond belief, uh, especially because the guy's smoking a joint. And uh, what he does, he <laughs> holds the joint outside the confessional door, you know, like the way people do when they're smoking a cigarette and they, they don't want the smoke to get into the room, you know. They, <laughs> yeah. And, and so it's so hilarious to watch him, you know, do this um, polite gesture, you know, while he's doing something so outrageous um, in terms of a confession. And the confession, by the way, that he has to give, he's there more to talk than he is to confess, believe me. And that's what makes the scene so funny because he has very little interest in saying um, my sins have been blah, 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 blah. You know, he doesn't have anything to do with that. But Michael's quite right about the fact that uh, some of them have wonderful things to say about um, uh, Sister Rose, while others, uh, somebody refers to her as a penguin bitch at one point. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, there are and, and believe me, uh, you know, I, as somebody who endured 12 years of Catholic education, I, I fully understand uh, that point of view because um, some of the nuns I had were real doozies. So um, but um, yes, I do agree, too, with you that um, uh, Father Lux, played by John Doman, is a, a terrific performance because it's a very difficult performance. The playwright has given him an affliction that I'm not sure he needed to have. But uh, but he comes out at the end with a, a, a monologue about um, his feelings about uh, religion that uh, may not be what you expect from a priest or may be what you expect from a priest who's been in the trenches for a long time. So a very worthwhile uh, play and the type of play where you laugh at things and wonder if you were supposed to laugh. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, gee, um, is that funny? I find it funny, but maybe it's not funny because it's so dark and, um, and sometimes even cruel, but try to keep from laughing at uh, Our Lady of 121st Street. Definitely, um, it let the season go out with a bang, no question. Mm. 
All right. So uh, we'll have a link to Our Lady of 121st Street, uh, which is playing at the Signature Theater Company, the one here in New York on 42nd Street. All right. Uh, Peter, you got over to the 92nd Y to see uh, Lyrics and Lyricists, a special presentation of Frank Lesser, Lyricist. So tell us about that. Well, the title is um, not quite uh, accurate uh, because uh, one expects to go there and simply hear songs that uh, Frank Lesser wrote in conjunction with a composer because during his years in Hollywood, which predated his um, time in um, in New York as a, as a, bro- as a Broadway-only composer – it uh, it really uh, there was a lot of work that was uh, that he came out with and he got some Oscar nominations and some real pop hits um, that uh, that were certainly part of the American fabric, um, including of course Heart and Soul, which um, <laughs> most uh, pianists know how to play, uh, no matter how rudimentary pianists they may be. So as it turns out, the lyricists uh, part of the show was simply the first act. The second act was songs from his Broadway shows, for which, of course, he wrote music. Um, David Loud, who's the artistic director, uh, gave a, a wonderful presentation, giving little bits of information in between the songs. And I was very amused by two things. One, uh, he said, and the Book of Guys and Dolls written by Abe Burroughs, and he went right on. And um, I, I, I barked out a laugh to the point of which people turned around and said, well, why is that so funny? <laughs> the reason it's funny is because there's been such controversy about Guys and Dolls, about who wrote what and all this kind of business. And uh, the thing was, originally a writer named Joe Swirling was assigned to the project. And if you take Cy Fewer's word for it. I mean, he told me this face to face and uh, he was a very pugnacious guy, a really rough and tumble guy, you know, saying he didn't write one word of Guys and Dolls. Abe Burroughs had to rewrite the whole thing. And in fact, um, at I think it was the 92 revival, there was a um, there was a um, article uh, written and um, saying, you know, the book by Joe Swirling and Abe Burroughs came in and did a little work. Um, Cy Fewer felt compelled to write a, a letter to the Times and saying, no, he didn't write one word of it, which was followed by a letter from Joe Swirling's son saying, oh, that's not true at all. Uh, my father's greatly responsible. But anyway, it was, it was fun to hear David Loud editorialize and um, say that indeed um, it, it was Abe Burroughs and Abe Burroughs alone. The other thing I found fascinating has to do with something I said um, rather recently, a week or two ago, when I talked about the fact that um, in the Alan J. Lerner book, there's mentioning uh, uh, that a show ran a disappointing, like 129 performances. And I said, gee, you know, considering the show's run so long today, will we ever hear that the show ran a disappointing 3,000 performances? (laughs) And ironically enough, um, <laughs> David Loud said, where's Charlie ran a respectable 798 performances? Well, frankly, back in 1948, well, 50 by the time the run ended, uh, <laughs> 798 was probably good enough to make you in the top 15 longest running musicals of all time. So I think it was more than respectable for its time. However, the narration was terrific and, um, he really did a good job. But of course we want to know about the performers. Well, Farrah Alvin was wonderful getting all the comic songs and, uh, she really delivered them beautifully. Um, you would think that, um, Adelaide's lament would be 
in there, but David said um, a personal thing that his father always had such opinions and how people delivered uh, Adelaide's lament that he was going to keep it off the program. But she got all the other comic songs, including uh, Ooh, My Feet, as you would expect. Um, Louis Cleal was in there, too, and he got um, the uh, romantic songs um, by and large. Um, and a very clever idea was having Farrah Al- Alvin, uh, Samantha Mazel, and uh, Laura Darrell, I guess it's pronounced, um, do fugue for tin horns. Uh, so it was fun to see women do it as opposed to the men we've always seen since um, 1950. So that was really good too. James Snyder had a lot of charm, a great deal of charm um, in delivering his numbers as well. But this Samantha Mazel, I'm telling you, uh, I think this is really a major talent. She is, uh, uh, she takes center stage uh, and boy does she belt out a song and what's really wonderful it's not a case that she's just a singer she feels every lyric you can really tell that she's been extraordinarily well trained because uh, thought goes into every word that she's saying and it's really delicious to see a performer be able to do this so this is a very worthwhile evening and if you're listening to this on Sunday they are doing two performances tomorrow Monday yes they do a Monday matinee which is really quite a nice thing and then they do a Monday evening performance. And depending on when you listen to this, uh, certainly some of the early trivia listeners uh, uh, are listening to this around 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Well, there's a performance tonight, too, at the 92nd Street Y on Lexington Avenue, a very commodious house. And and I think it's uh, a very nice evening to be reminded of uh, the Frank Lesser really was one of our greats. As David Loud said, he didn't write as much as some other people did, and that's true. But boy, what he wrote was really quite, uh, quite wonderful stuff. So uh, for our early listeners, we have a link to that in the show notes. You can get right there right away. And uh, for the <laughs> folks who listen to it after it's closed, uh, you can check out the 92nd Street Wise website for more information about it. All right, so... Uh, That kind of wraps it up for our abbreviated discussion of this week on Broadway. As I mentioned, we are not going to be back next week, uh, but we will be back the following week to talk about the Tony Awards. Um, Matt and I will be on today on Broadway on Monday morning to give you the the Tony Award winners and some brief thoughts about it. And Peter and Mike will be back on following Sunday the 17th to talk about it. You know, one thing I want... Uh, one thing I wanted to mention, uh, James, is that we do have, I think, more summer openings uh, this season than than maybe we've seen in the recent past. We uh, The Boys in the Band just opened. Well, that would be late spring. But we have uh, Straight White Men and Head Over Heels coming in July. And then we have Pretty Woman and getting the band back together in August. So um, so those who need uh, Broadway fixes of new shows, uh-huh. you, won't have to, you won't have to wait <laughs> till the fall because you have those to look forward to. Sure. And uh, um, we talked about on Today on Broadway, something announced a closing that I was surprised about. Do you guys remember what that was? Uh, something um, escape to Margaritaville. Oh. Escape to Margaritaville. Escape to Margaritaville uh, yeah. announced uh, an early closing, um, and uh, Matt and I were wondering why. Because you know, to close July first, yes, uh, is a very very strange time for any show to close. Uh, so it makes us think that the Marquee Theater somebody is going to announce this week. 
of something that's going to open in the fall. So that's kind of exciting to find that out. I, I, I don't know why Escape to Margarita would close at the height of tourism season in New York City. But on the other hand, yeah. that theater, uh, I believe that theater has been difficult to fill. So maybe it's not for that reason. I'm not, I'm not sure it's for that reason either, James. Uh, you could very well be right, and uh, time will certainly tell. But, boy, um, I, I can imagine his producers saying, look, we let's not throw good money after bad. I mean, we've but just lost the national money. tour. And they keep oh, on. But they always announce a national tour. That doesn't yeah. mean it's happen they always do that yeah and i'll admit that some shows that are failures on broadway do wind up touring uh, sure um however um that's a way of saving face i think more often than not uh and we're going to tour so um it, it it makes it seem like the show was a success and for people who don't pay attention to broadway if they hear a show is closing for all they know escape to margaritaville has been on broadway for seven years and they just haven't been aware of it so a national tour makes it sound like it's a worthwhile property well, also, if if they do tour, uh, you know, and if they are losing money on Broadway week after week, then then it would behoove them to close sooner and get out there sooner. You know, before this show opened, a friend of mine predicted that it would be a phenomenon because of the tremendous fan base of Jimmy Buffett, the, the parrot heads. But it is interesting to see how sometimes that translates and sometimes it doesn't to success on Broadway. I One could have huge discussions on exactly why, how much, if anything, the reviews had to do with it. Um, but it's possible that this is a kind of show that the fans will come to it, but they don't want to go to New York to see it. And or, I, or, again, yeah. uh, with the success of Smokey Joe's Cafe, and we're going to see that again soon. That's going to have a summer opening. Mm. Um I think a lot of these people just want to see one song after another. They may have been put off by the book of uh, Escape to Margaritaville. The, to them, it was killing time when they could be hearing another Jimmy Buffett song. Sure, sure. So uh, I'm looking quickly at the grosses here. Um, they've been comfortably between six hundred and 800000 a week, um, although the percentages are uh, right. are uh, uh, potential are are pretty low in the 30s and 40s but 600 to 800,000 to run that show they probably are not losing money uh, well I, I have no idea but um, I was just suggesting that yeah, that might no, but uh, they, they, but I just thought that you know uh, if a show gets shut out at the Tonys they usually announce, you know, they're closing the second or third week of June and they call it a I, day. But for them to announce ahead of time um, that they're going to close July 1st uh, made me think that something somebody else was pushing them out to get that theater uh, for the yeah, party for the very fall. Well but I have noticed many shows now that announce closing don't say we're closing Saturday or Sunday. They say um, they give a, a, a whole bunch of weeks. This is something that's, that's this happened in the recent years. In olden days, you announced you were closing uh, usually a week or, or two at the most. But now I find a month is um, – our. do you remember 42nd Street, the revival? It sounds like around nine months, ten months, even 11 months before they were closing. So I think this might – this is a wild theory. 
and I'm not saying I'm right at all, but it may very well be a case. It may very well be a case that we are so busy today that we need more time to plan what we're doing and um, we can't get to things as soon as we might. So if we hear that we have a few weeks to get to a show, maybe we will be able to get to it while in uh, saying it, we're closing Saturday, there isn't enough time to do that. And in the old days when people seem to be less busy, maybe they weren't, but they seem to be less busy that they would have more time in their hands to get to a show. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? I think um, that uh, Children of a Lesser God had a, a, a fairly swift closing after the announcement. Uh, but, you know, I guess it depends largely on the type of show and, and whether it's perceived to have a tourist audience and how big a show it is and uh, what the advance is. You know, it's, it's lots and lots of variables. Hmm. All right. So uh, let's wrap it up. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn plays us, Stitcher plays us, Google Play plays us, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, as well as a number of uh, outlets around the world in public radio stations that will play us as well. So contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found at BroadwayRadio.com in the show notes, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. Uh, the 92nd Street Y, the American Theater Group, Small Town um, Story. We have a little video in there from their website. Uh, uh, link to uh, a number of things we had in there. And Swamp Gravy. You know, if you're a listener that has seen Swamp Gravy, gravy let us know. Yeah, I'd love to uh, yeah, perhaps we can get a uh, trivia question out of Swamp Gravy there. But uh-huh. until then, Peter, what is the answer to last week's trivia? Well, the question was, the show that closed some months shy of becoming Broadway's longest-running musical shuttered 10 years to the day of the opening of a show that did become Broadway's longest-running musical. What are the two shows? Well, South Pacific closed on January 16, 1954, making it solely behind Oklahoma's Broadway longest-running musical. Ten years later to the day, January 16, 1964, Hello, Dolly! opened and became Broadway's longest-running musical. Granted, only for nine months, but still, it became Broadway's longest-running musical. For the second week in a row, Daniel Schwartzberg was the first to get it followed by Brigadude, Alex Lauer, Martin Parker, and Ingrid Gammerman. All right, this week's question. First, I'm looking for the name of a smash hit musical that is so famous that it has name recognition with people that know virtually nothing about musicals. A musical that was even made into more than one movie. Mm. Then, I want the name of a comedy that opened on Broadway precisely 47 years to the day before that musical opened. So they both opened on a certain date, 47 years apart. The play had a title that was a parody of the famous musical's source material. So what's the name of the musical and the far, far, far less successful comedy? All right. If you have an answer to that... Uh, email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
But somehow I can see Just exactly how I'd be If I loved you Time and again I would try to say All I'd want you Oh, no. 